Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, we are joined by Lindsay Chervinsky for a extended discussion about Benjamin Franklin. Born 1706, died 1790, one of the principal figures in the course of the American Revolution, the inventor of bifocals, the lightning rod, the Franklin stove, and the harmonica, amongst many other achievements in science. He started at age 17 as a printer's apprentice and ended up retiring at age 42. He was such a prolific writer and successful printer. At the end of the Constitutional Convention in 1787, a woman came up to him and said, what have you given us, Dr. Franklin? And he paused in his usual way and said, Madam, a republic, if you can keep it. Be sure to watch Ken Burns' documentary on Benjamin Franklin airing this week as well. All that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current and historical American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, one thing I've always been impressed about by you, sir, is your, your love of science, your trust in science, your desire for scientific knowledge. And I got to thinking about your relationship with Benjamin Franklin. He, he was recognized as a, a leading scientist, really, of the world during your time. His pioneering work on electricity in the 1750s made him a world historical figure. Uh, his pamphlet on electricity was published in Britain. Uh, he was admitted to the Royal Society. Uh, he became one of the most famous men on earth, not just because he was a famous storyteller and a great diplomat, but because he embodied the principles of the Enlightenment. I felt so fortunate to know him. He was a full generation older than I was. I, I would not claim that we were close friends. But I looked up to him and believed that he was one of the most important men of our times and really one of the most important men of history. I did find one sort of comparative fact between the two of you. Mr. Franklin invented a great many things, and many of his inventions were for the goodness of mankind. He never took a patent out on his inventions. He wanted to share them freely with everyone. And, sir, you did the same thing, did you not? That's true, of course, but my inventions are pretty weak by comparison with the lightning rod, for example. Oh, sir, the moldboard plow is a, quite an a invention that saved hours of toil from farmers. That's the only one of my uh, several inventions that I would give any uh, credit to as, as ameliorating the condition of mankind. But to your point, I believe that patents should be very limited if they exist at all. And I famously said, he who takes an idea from me informs himself without disinforming me, just as he who lights his taper from my candle illuminates himself without darkening me. In other words, ideas once discovered or uncovered really belong to mankind, not to the person that was lucky enough or intelligent enough to come upon them. On that subject, Mr. Franklin wrote, as we enjoy the advantages from the inventions of others, we should be glad of an opportunity to serve others by any invention of ours, and this we should do freely and generously. This was the very spirit of him. Of course, one could say that he was independently wealthy early in life. He retired for the first time, I think, in his 40s. So he had the wherewithal to be as generous 
as he was about his inventions, but I could not agree with Dr. Franklin more that humans are a community, a cooperative. Uh, we spoke of the Republic of Letters, and if I, in my own leisure, happened upon a plow that can make life for our farmers less burdensome, how dare I try to monopolize that for pure profit? I, I should, it should be in my interest as it is in the interest of humankind to disseminate that as widely as possible and as quickly as possible. As you say, he was successful at an early age. He wrote quite a, quite a lot, sir. A lot of it was humorous or perhaps satirical. How did you feel about his writing? Was it, was it something you enjoyed and learned from? Well, yes and no. I, I don't have a very strong sense of humor, and I didn't write much that could be regarded as funny in any definition of that term. And so some of his more playful sallies, as we would have called them then, struck me as of no great importance. On the other hand, he was beloved by the masses and his poor Richard's Almanac with its maxims, like, for example, fish and vinegar stink after three days, things like that. A penny saved is a penny earned. Those maxims became, in a sense, the common inheritance of the American people, and we above all other, and we above all other people on earth, pride ourselves for common sense. Well, sir, many of of Franklin's pieces of advice remind me of your ten things list. Yes, I did have my own decalogue: uh, never spend your money before you have it, and never ask others to do something you can do it for yourself. When angry, count to ten, and when very angry, count to one hundred, and a few others of that sort. Mine were not as witty as Dr. Franklin's, but they certainly were written down in earnest. Well, all hail a great American, Benjamin Franklin. And thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are most welcome, sir. citizens and welcome to this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm your host David Swenson. I'm joined by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and we are both so pleased to welcome back Lindsay Chervinsky for another of our 10 things conversations. Although this week it might be difficult to keep the list of just 10 things as our person of discussion is Benjamin Franklin. I suspect this could easily be two or three programs, but part of the reason the two of you picked Franklin is the upcoming film by Ken Burns, Benjamin Franklin, which premieres on April 4th, and Clay, you are the perfect witness to talk about this documentary, having been part of its production, sir. I felt so honored to be asked by Dayton Duncan and Ken Burns, uh, both friends of yours, David, to uh, fly to Boston and and go over to Walpole, New Hampshire to be interviewed. And when you're interviewed by Ken Burns, they don't tell you anything in advance. You just show up, and then Ken Burns, with his extraordinary visage, sits about two feet from you, and he says, well, who was Benjamin Franklin? And you're off and running, and it lasts about two hours. And when you leave, you wish you could um, either drown yourself 
or start over again and you remember every bad thing you said. I don't know if this happens to you, Lindsay. You realize you're an idiot. You don't deserve this. That, And you. I, every time I've ever been interviewed by him, it's been about six times now, I begged for a re-interview. And he always says, no, nobody nobody gets a re-interview. <laughs> I really love that description. That That's really funny. Um, I... Maybe I, I don't, I guess I wish that I had that experience. Whenever I do these things, I walk out and I have no recollection of what I said. I have no memory of whatever took place. Even, you know, the Washington three-part documentary series that was on the History Channel, I recorded for like five hours for that and I had no memory. I walked out and I had no memory. It's like my brain is just, whoop, it's completely blank. You're on autopilot in there. Yeah, well, and I think also, you know, I put, I try and put so much energy into it. That when it finally the camera stops rolling and and you allow your adrenaline to start to come down, the it, it's such a great well I have such a great high feeling because I love doing these things and then it's like it starts to sort of collapse and all of a sudden you're sitting in a puddle on the floor and you're like yeah I can't move I'm I guess I'm here for a while puddle on the floor I think I've heard you use that phrase Clay <laughs> yeah when I get back to the hotel. I'm always thinking, was that 1780? Was that Shakespeare or was it Homer? I'm sure that they fact check for you. They, they do fact check. But, you know, the thing is that, as you know, Lindsay, that Ken Burns can ask anyone on earth to be in his films and almost everyone will say yes. So I feel so thrilled that he reaches down so far to include me. And then I think, cutting room floor, cutting room floor. <laughs> well, you, you know, it, it's always hard to imagine what, Ken Burns is going to present because he does it so well. But do, do you have any feel for for what this documentary is going to be be like, Clay? Spectacular, of course. Um, you know, it's going to have all. He, he has he has a huge budget, more than any other documentary filmmaker. There's a certain Ken Burns style, as we all know, and so there are some expected things like the the Ken Burns effect on wandering up paintings and photographs and street scenes, and you know there will be. Lots of scenes in London and scenes in Boston and Paris uh, because the budget is big enough to accommodate all of that. Uh, I know one thing. I, 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 I never prepare for these things. I just read a book and turn up, um, banking on what I think I know. But this time I actually went into training like a, like a guy trying out for you know the Class C tournament in basketball or something. And so I, there was one thing I really, really, really wanted to say, and it's on the list. Can I start with that, David? Absolutely. So John Adams, as you know, Lindsay, was not a great fan of Dr. Franken. He had good reasons to be upset with Franken. And then he had his usual John Adams envy and vitriol and so on. But he did say this, and I, 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 I memorized this for the Ken Burns film, and he let me say it. And if this gets into the film, I will say, as Jefferson did, nunc dimittis. Now you may dismiss me. My work is done. This is, Lindsay, this is what Adam said about Benjamin Franklin. I choke up every time I read this. His name was familiar to governments and to people, to foreign courtiers, nobility, clergy, and philosophers, as well as plebeians, to such a degree that there was scarcely a peasant or a citizen, a valet de chambre, a coachman or a footman, a lady's chambermaid or a scullion in a kitchen who did not consider him as a friend to humankind. When they spoke of him, they seemed to think he was to restore the golden age. Wow. Coming from Adams. He could really turn a phrase. He could really turn a phrase. And it's so true. I mean, that, that, that Franklin was, in some ways, the first world citizen. And he was beloved by the commoners, 
all the way down to a kitchen wench and, you know, a valet, and then up to the, the highest circles of the aristocracy, that he, he was universally admired, except by a tiny handful of people who didn't. But most of the world thought that he embodied everything that was right with civilization, including the American dream, because as you know, he came from nothing and became one of the most important people on earth. And so that was, in a sense, the very embodiment of what America stood for. I love that you started there. And I think that's such a good place to begin because he, he really did stand for the American dream, the potential of the American experiment, all that could be accomplished with education and the resources of North America and science and space. What I what I was what I found to be so interesting when I was doing reading for this project is that he he was indeed, you know, the first American. He was the he was the first American that everyone knew. He was the first global citizen. He was a master, and, and I think we'll get more into some of these details, but he was a master of symbolism and styled himself as the ultimate consummate American. And yet he was deeply insecure about he, how he was remembered. He was adored across Europe, but he didn't feel that he was adored across the United States all the time. And that was partly because he spent so much of his life away from the United States. And so he was deeply insecure about how he was remembered, his legacy, whether Americans trusted him, whether he was going to have this, you know, role in the pantheon. He was sort of jealous of the envy. He was envious of the symbolism and the the gratitude that he saw that Americans had for people like Washington and Adams. And of course, Adams thought that they had it for him and, you know, for Franklin and not for him. Um, and so I think that, that 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 worry about his role in history is one of the more human elements of him and, and one that we often don't think about because history has has written, you know, him into the story. And he's been such a huge part of the American creation. So those concerns that he had, I think, were often forgotten. We have to keep in mind that Benjamin Franklin was born in 1706, at the very beginning of the 18th century. He, he's really a, a, a person from a previous era from the American Revolution. So by the time the revolution comes, and particularly the Constitutional Convention, he's an old man. Jefferson is like a grandson to him. Jefferson is 1743. I think Washington, was it 1734? 1732. 1732. So these are, these are youngsters compared to the eminent Dr. Franklin, and they look at him as sort of a, 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 a almost a, a, a person from a pantheon of great ones from a preceding age. Absolutely. I mean, by the time they were, you know, when they were still in figurative diapers, Franklin had already created militias. He had created libraries. He had been to London. He was working. He was, he was married. He had, you know, illegitimate children and then legitimate children. He had, you know, he had created these societies. He was a remarkable figure and very well known when they were still babies. And so when it came time for the revolution, in some ways that made him a, a very necessary leader, but in some ways it also made him a little bit questionable out of the loop yeah because he had built this career in the british system i mean they were all they all considered themselves to be deeply loyal british citizens until they weren't but he especially had had all of these royal positions he had real reason to be a loyal citizen unlike you know maybe jefferson and washington who kind of felt they they had been thwarted and so he you know he really did a 180 to become this revolutionary figure so just before David takes us back to our list, 
you know, so that <laughs> in, in, in two cases, I mean, Franklin and Washington, certainly, if the British had been more generous to them, they might have stayed loyal because Washington was very upset during the French and Indian War when he was treated like a mere colonial and put down in, in every way. If he had gotten the, the plum positions he wanted in the British Army, who knows what would have happened. And uh, Franklin uh, was on the rise in British circles and could have taken it farther. And when he was stymied by the Brits, uh, then he came back to the U.S. And as you know, when he came back to the U.S. after that long, long, long period away, many Americans were suspicious that he wasn't really on board with the revolution. Well, I think a, a good way to envision that is he lived in London longer than he lived in any one place at, at one time. Of course, he came back to Philadelphia time and time and time again. But the most concentrated chunk of time and the house he lived in the longest was his house in London. And I can understand why Americans would be suspicious of that. And we don't do scandalmongery here, but he had a second family in England. He did. Of course we do scandalmongering. What are you talking about? <laughs> You too. I would almost make a suggestion that we suspend the rule of lists this week. Uh, I, I will draw us back to some of the subjects. Well, give us a, give us one more from the list to set us up. Uh, here's a small one before we take our break. I don't know what this is about. Uh, you wrote, Clay, about the famous two loaves of bread into to Philadelphia. So Ben Franklin wrote an autobiography, which is considered one of the great early documents in American history. It's also one of the great pieces of fiction. <laughs> there she goes. But, but <laughs> Welcome back, Lindsay. <laughs> Thanks. I wondered where she was. But he, you know, we talk now about self-fashioning. He created a persona in that autobiography, which was not quite the true... Benjamin Franklin, and it was wildly successful. But one of the stories he tells about himself is when he escaped from Boston to go to Philadelphia, he was just a kid, a teenager, and he knows almost nothing and knows nobody there really, but he has just enough money to buy a loaf of bread. So he goes into this bake shop and says he gives them, what, two pence or something to buy a loaf of bread, and they give him two large loaves that you have to get the sense that they're the size of a big football or a small basketball. And then he's he realized he, he got too much, that he looks ridiculous. and he, and he he But, of course, he's hungry, too, and he has to save food. So he's carrying these two loaves down the street. And then coming out of a doorway is this young, attractive woman, Deb, Deborah, who later becomes his wife. And he said, thus, I made my grand entry into the intellectual capital of the British Empire to Philadelphia. It's just a fabulous story. I think it's probably true, if a little bit exaggerated, but this is the kind of thing he was famous for. Jefferson could never, under any circumstances, have told this story. That's a great story. I'd forgotten that. We need to take a short break, but we will return in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour of Lindsay Chervinsky, 10 Things About the Great Dr. Benjamin Franklin. And Lindsay, I want to get your opinion about something. You know, if you ask 100 people in, in public, you know, tell me about Dr. Franklin, they'll say, oh, the ladies, the ladies in France, he loved the ladies, and so on. And he had all these affairs, and so on. You know, I, I've always doubted that, but let me read from a letter written in 1784 by none other than Abigail Adams about the meeting of Franklin and Madame Helvetius. And Abigail Adams is basically a small-town Puritan from the New World, and she's shocked by French manners. And she says that Madame Helvetius came in, and she said, where's Franklin? And then he says, uh, she said, how I look, said she, taking hold of a chemise made of Tiffany, which she had had on over a blue lute string which looked much upon the decay as her beauty, for she was once a handsome woman. Her hair was frizzled. Over it she had a small hat with a dirty gauze handkerchief around it, and a bit dirtier gauze than ever my maids wore. She had a black gauze scarf thrown over her shoulder. She ran out of the room, and when she returned, the doctor entered at one door, she at the other, upon which she ran forward to him, caught him by the hand. Hellos! Franklin! Then gave him a double kiss, one on each cheek and another on his forehead, when they went into the room to dine, she was placed between the doctor and my husband, Mr. Adams. She carried on the chief of the conversation at dinner, frequently locking her hand in the doctor's and sometimes spreading her arms upon the backs of both gentlemen's chairs, then throwing her arm carelessly on the doctor's neck. And then it gets worse because she has a little lapdog that, that wets the floor and, and Abigail Adams says in, with horror, and she just took her dress and mopped up the urine from the floor. So that's a very famous story, of course, Lindsay. What do you say about the reputation of Franklin in informal American memory as this sort of womanizer? In defense of the great Abigail Adams, if I saw someone clean up dog urine with their dress while wearing it, I am no Puritan, and I too would be horrified at this behavior. So that just has to be said. You've never seen this. You've never seen this at a party in Charlottesville. It's it's not a usual party trick that I come across, um, I have to confess. Um, so, uh, you know, with, with Franklin and the ladies, I think that the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. There's no doubt that he was a great flirt and enjoyed it very much. And was probably also a little bit of a creepy old man, because by the time he was doing all this flirting, he was definitely on the older side. And I think some of it was probably just, you know, affectionate fun. But there are these stories of these young women in scanty, you know, scantily dressed, sitting in his lap. Don't I mean, you, you know, think that and... there's partly the older man, he's too old to be a threat. He's just kind of, everyone can, he's safe. He's, he's a safe roué. He's, he's safely flirtatious, don't you think? Um, I think some of it was safe. I am sure that there were marital indiscretions. He was he was away from his wife for 20 years. I very seriously doubt he kept to any vows for that amount of time. And that I don't think is necessarily a reflection of him and more a reflection of 18th century societal norms, not to necessarily absolve him of that behavior. But I do think that there was there's probably something there. Now, his being a fan of the ladies, I'm not sure necessarily translated to a sense of equality. He was away from his wife for 20 years and left her, you know, I mean, there, there's like some not some not great behavior there. I left her to deal with children. Didn't, you know, she wasn't, she was doing poorly in health and he didn't really try and get back. She died before he got back. Not ideal. Um, so I think that a lot of it was, you know, he was charming. He was a safe person to flirt with. He often used that, 
affability as a diplomatic tool and and women were very important intellectual figures in France and so there was certainly the madam that you spoke about had these really important intellectual circles so I think there was certainly an element there but I don't think his love of the ladies should be conflated with a sense of what we would think of as feminism or equality. Neither one. He's no Jeffrey Epstein. He's no predator. And he also, no. but he's not a feminist and he's not, he doesn't believe in female equality and his treatment of his wife at times um, is really uh, upsetting. But I think that Franklin knew something about diplomacy that John Adams didn't even, couldn't even see, which is that diplomacy is not two diplomatic men in a room hammering out a decision or an agreement. It's, Franklin had a much more suave and indirect approach to this. Adams thought he was lazy, indolent, uh, narcissistic, and to be sure, Franklin probably was all of those things in some part. But he also knew how to play the long game diplomatically, and he was brilliant at it. Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of if you were to think about the different types of diplomatic roles that one could have, the long game of Franklin's diplomacy in France as a long-term minister, he was perfectly suited for that. He did brilliantly during the war to ensure that French support continued to flow and to develop and to cultivate this alliance. But when the time came to negotiate that peace treaty with Great Britain, I think that he was not particularly well suited for that. And John Jay and John Adams played a very essential role in making sure American interests were protected first as opposed to French interests. Well, let me ask you this then. Uh, you know, it's often thought that uh, Franklin and Franklin alone got us the French alliance in 1778. Uh, do you think that's overstated? Yes. I mean, he certainly was one of the more important roles. And I think that so much of his work was the symbolic work. It wasn't necessarily even the negotiations. It was building a sense of what the American identity was and, and representing that as a figurehead. It was, you know, showing up to Versailles in the simple Quaker clothing and that the French loved that. And so because the French loved him and loved this concept of America that he presented, it helped to build the groundswell of support for the alliance. And that's, I think, his biggest contribution. Noting Franklin's great contributions, uh, I always look for pivotal points in history and I'd like to read something from Rick Atkinson's brilliant book, The British Are Coming. In the prologue, he writes, On January 29, 1774, Franklin appeared before the King's Council in the cockpit, a Whitehall amphitheater once used for cockfights. For more than an hour, Franklin was pelted with invective, denounced as a man without honor and a hoary-headed traitor who had forfeited all respect of societies and men. The packed gallery jeered while he stood as still as statuary, wearing a fine blue suit of spotted Manchester velvet. It was the greatest humiliation of his life. He then goes on to talk about Franklin writing 20,000 words uh, to his son, William, which was a detailed account of his failed diplomacy in Britain, and then writes... That failure had taught him lessons in patience, tact, intrigue, and power, lessons that would prove useful since his best days as a diplomat, perhaps the greatest America ever produced, still lay ahead of him. The Pennsylvania packet shrugged off her moorings and crowded on sail, bearing him home where he belonged. Franklin leaked a couple of documents to the press. 
and it was thought to be a, entirely inappropriate for him to have done so. He exposed some people in the British ministry and in Pennsylvania in a way that was pretty wild. And so he was brought into this special room in Westminster that's called the cockpit. This You'd have to think of a kind of like a almost a surgeon's uh, arena, you know, with the chairs around it. And he was made to stand for several hours and he was browbeaten and, and rebuked in the most vicious terms by effectively the British prime minister. What's your sense of it, Lindsay? Yeah, so at this moment, he was not only there as representative of Pennsylvania, but then all of the other colonies had sort of adopted him as a representative in in these trade discussions. This is as tensions are beginning to escalate. Parliament has passed a series of bills that have various different tax measures, and the the colonists want someone to speak for their, their interests. And Franklin is there. He's done a pretty good job of it thus far. He has excellent relationships with all of the people in power. And this moment that these tensions had been building for a while, and so he was kind of in an uncomfortable situation because he saw himself as uh, both a, a Briton and an American. I mean, they didn't really call themselves Americans at the time, but he, he had identified with Pennsylvania and Boston, but also saw himself as a Briton and loved his time in London, desperately loved it. So he was really stuck in between a rock and a hard place. And this moment was so humiliating and demonstrated to him that they that the, the powers that be in Britain did not see him as an equal, did not see colonists as an equal, that it was the breaking point for him. And I'm glad you brought it up, David, because it wasn't really clear which way he was going to go. And in fact, of course, as, as we know, his son remained loyal to the crown and was a royal governor. And so there was a lot of reason for him to remain loyal, but it was so humiliating to him that he you know, really turned against the crown and turned against parliament and went home and then spent the next several years proving that he was indeed loyal to the cause of independence. Must have been hard on him to have to prove this to the American people, but he did. So just a couple of things about that. So one is that you were right, Dave, the British drove him into rebellion. And who knows what he would have done had they treated him with greater um, tolerance on that occasion. Uh, as as Lindsay says, he was in a very difficult position because the revolution was percolating and he was trying to kind of stay out of both sides' line of fire on this and found himself not just uh, victimized, but in that, that excruciating moment where he's standing in that cockpit. It must have been one of the hardest moments of of his life. And his son remained loyal this drove a wedge between them, and what's so horrifying, and I got to talk about this in the in, in the interview with Ken Burns, we'll see if it's in the film, but after the war was over and, and his son had gone to prison in the United States and, and, and some very difficult actual prison conditions, and when everything finally cleared and his son was back out in the world, he wrote to his father and said, you know, you're my father, we should probably try to work this out. And Franklin said, no, I want nothing to do with you. I get the sense from Franklin that he was a very different person to those that were not super close to him than he was to those that were close. He could be incredibly loving and kind and generous. He established pretty much every charitable or civic-minded institution in Philadelphia and education and, you know, anything you can think of, he basically founded it. He was, as you said, beloved across nations, across the globe. 
And yet when it came to his wife, when it came to his children, he could be very cold and very harsh. And it was almost like he couldn't let people in. The The friendliness was the mask that worked really well. The warmth and close and personableness didn't work so well up close. What's so interesting, David, is that here's this guy who, we, when you think of, when you imagine Franklin, you see him in a room with others. You always see him with others, telling a story to cheer Jefferson up over the Declaration of Independence or, you know, an amusing anecdote here or um, a dinner party or a salon in Paris. You always see Franklin in a social uh, world. But the fact is he spent most of his life alone in a room with the English language. He's a very voluminous writer and, and, and a printer. And so we think of him as this social creature. But when he was alone, his writings were much more pointed than his conversation was. And we'll get to one at the end about slavery. But um, I think you're right. I mean, you started, Lindsay, by saying that, that he was self-fashioning and kind of created the persona of the genial Dr. Franklin. Behind that mask, that persona, was a somewhat different human being who could be vindictive. This incident in the cockpit in Britain uh, has led to his relations with his son and his his family. Uh, you know, he was humiliated in Britain, and you know Britain really blew it because they had a friend there that probably could have led to maybe not such an awful outcome with the Americans, but they humiliated him. And he said, I'm done with you. He left, made the decision right then and there to go back to America, return to America as a hero. And and he kind of did the same thing with his son. You treated me poorly. I'm done with you forever. So Lindsay, let me ask you a question. Could the revolution have been avoided? You know, it, it so, you know, people like Jefferson are always saying, nobody wishes more than I to remain a citizen of Britain if they will only, you know, conciliate and so on. Can you, was it inevitable by 1775 or uh, if George III had had been less stubborn? I mean, what what are the chances that this could have been worked out, do you think? Well, I don't think that a status quo could have remained forever. By the 1770s, the colonies were so large and were beginning to be so economically and culturally and politically mature that remaining in subservient colonial status was probably very unlikely for long, especially because it was a very well-educated society. It was a very literate society. It was a society that partook in British politics with gusto. So the concept and the political discourse about rights and freedom and representation that was a very central part of the British identity was of course going to inflect it was going to infect American discourse as well. So I think that something would have happened. The most likely outcome to avoid war would have been to create a Commonwealth arrangement like the one that ended up happening with Australia and Canada to retain some oversight but to give a fair amount of independence and local autonomy over governance. I don't think that would have been acceptable to the powers that be in Britain and the king in particular. He was a, I know at some point we're going to do an episode on King George III, and he was an ardent defender of monarchical power. And so it took the revolution for the British government to think creatively about other types of colonial holdings. So I don't think if you have the Commonwealth without the revolution, but that kind of leads to a you know catch twenty two. We need to take a break in a few minutes. But before we do, 
and and we have still have Franklin somewhat in France. There was a, a one of your points, Clay, was about uh, the meeting of Franklin and Voltaire, the, the embrace. I'm so glad you brought that. I was just going to bring it up myself before we leave France for the U.S. Um, in 1778 in April, Adams and Franklin were meeting. They were both uh, ministers in France. Franklin was essentially the ambassador, and Adams was there on um, a more generalized mission. And, of course, they had a lot of tension between them. And they were meeting, and they went, they went over to the Academy of Sciences, which was the number one intellectual salon in France. It was the equivalent of the Royal Society in Britain or the American Philosophical Society in the United States, which, by the way, Franklin created. And they went there, and they were listening to a bunch of papers and a bunch of obituaries and so on. And then suddenly there was a there was kind of a buzzing in the crowd in this in this place, and everyone realized Voltaire is here. Now Voltaire is to France what Franklin is to the U.S., but on steroids. Voltaire is like the great man of the Enlightenment, the most the genius above all geniuses, um, and so. And here was Franklin from the U.S. and Voltaire, and they were sort of seen as occupying the same intellectual positions in their societies. And so the crowd began to murmur. And then it soon became clear that they wanted Franklin to meet Voltaire. He never had. And so Franklin's like, okay, okay. So he goes over, and, 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 and they sort of bowing to each other and so on. And then the crowd said, they must shake hands. They must shake hands. And they did. And that wasn't enough. And then the crowd said, they must embrace in the French style. They must embrace in the French style. And finally, they do embrace and kiss each other on the cheek in the French manner. And the crowd is thrilled by this, this essential meeting of the two greatest men of the age. And you can imagine John Adams just dying of disgust, envy, um, just rolling his eyes and thinking, oh, give me a break. Lindsay, you're looking something up. So I actually have the description here of John Adams writing about this event, which is hilarious because as you can say, I mean, you can just feel his eyes rolling out of his head at the moment, but I love the the last line when he's describing what the, the cry was from the crowd. And he says, and the cry immediately spread through the whole kingdom. And I suppose over all Europe, how charming it was. Oh, it was enchanting to see Solon and Sophocles embracing. And you can just feel the sarcasm dripping from Poor him. Adams. And I'm sure part of him thought, hey, Voltaire should be hugging me. Okay, well, this, <laughs> this segment is complete now. You've made fun of Adams one more time. With that, we're going to take a short break. We will return to this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to... The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to this special Lindsay Chervinsky edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. She's our frequent guest in our 10 Things program. And in spite of her snark, we are so glad to have her here. You know, people can't see her expressions. I can. And so they're wounding. I will say that. They're, they're wounding. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to start with this. So here's what Jacques Turgeot said of Franklin. It's Latin, but it's one of the great. I mean, who would not want this Latin epigram? He said, Eripuit coila fulmen sceptrumque tyrannis, which translates, he ripped lightning from the skies and the scepter from kings. How great is that? You know, Alexander Pope said, wit is what oft was thought, but never so well expressed. He ripped scepters from the king's heads and lightning from the skies. Lindsay, we think of him sort of as this doddering guy with the long white hair over his shoulder, out with a kite, and but that's not true at all. He was a very major scientist. Yeah, I think the reason we so often underplay or downplay his scientific accomplishments is because most of them happened earlier in his life. And so we focus on the revolutionary era because that's the era we know. But one of the reasons he was so famous across Europe was because of this scientific achievement early on. And it really affected everything day to day. I mean, of course, electricity. But he had done a number of tinkerings with sort of the stoves that were typically in homes. And the Franklin stove was his invention. And it was so popular. Washington had it in his private study in the president's house. And he liked it so much that when he retired and he moved back to Mount Vernon, he asked for an exact replica to be made for the third floor bedroom at Mount Vernon. Franklin, ha yeah, I mean, it's just like, and, and this is, you know, it's the preeminent houses in, in North America, and they want his stove, and we don't even really think of this stove as being one of his big contributions. So he was an incredible scientist. He came up with little things for his own room that would make the room more comfortable. I mean, he just was really an innovative and creative thinker in a way that we don't often give him credit for. And he, he never patented any of his inventions. Uh, he, he just people could use them among which yeah. bifocals the the lightning rod the franklin stove and the harmonica he, he he created the harmonica which was a weird set of glass jars with different amounts of water in them but mozart another major composer has wound up using this instrument but in the 1750s one of his pamphlets on electricity was published in the european world and it, it electrified the world not to pun but so think of it this way Nobody really understood electricity at this time. And electricity, to the extent that they played with it, was kind of a parlor trick. You know, you made someone shock. You made the hair on a cat stand up and made a balloon you know, do something. It was still seen as kind of a parlor trick. And, and Franklin was not above that either. But he made this important discovery that electricity is a force out there. It's not something that's just um, that you just work up uh, for a dinner party. And by using the kite, he was trying to say electricity and lightning are the same thing, and I'll prove it. So it was a very solid scientific experiment. And think of it now. We, I mean, we absolutely take electricity for granted as if it's always been here. But remember, this was a world lit only by fire. Uh, when the, People had candles at night. Jefferson had a whale oil lamp that he had to climb up on a ladder and refill, and he could barely afford to buy the oil. Electricity was just being recognized for what it can be in this time, and Franklin was the pioneer, and it established his reputation throughout the learned world. And people 
you know, I don't know how it'd be like inventing rocketry or understanding the, the DNA uh, system. I mean, it was that important. And so we can never give it the kind of um, emphasis that it really deserves. Let's move Franklin to the American Revolution. Now, Clay, you wrote that he was late to the revolution and, and he was suspected by some to be a, being pro-British, possibly a double agent. But he had a major role in the Constitutional Convention when things were really breaking down and he made some famous statements that really ring true today. And I'll leave that for your comment, sir. Well, he's this elderly man by now and he's really there for symbolic purposes. Uh, he was brought in on a sedan chair, which is like a, a little mini Uber, and the people who carried it uh, were prisoners from the Walnut Street Jail, and it was like they were doing work relief to carry the eminent Franklin because his his kidney stones and his gout were such that that he couldn't walk, and a carriage would jar him too much. So he's being sort of brought in on eggshells for this, and he's everyone gets it. This, this is Franklin, and for some people that's roll your eyes, and for most people it's this eminent, elderly, great man. And he made a number of speeches at the Constitutional Convention, most of which were beside the point and sort of off. Uh, and he often had somebody else read them because he was even too weak to read out loud. But he did a couple of things that really matter. One is that when the things were breaking down, and particularly over big states and little states, which behind, as usual, there was, there was slavery, but when this was all breaking down and it looked like the thing might fall apart, he stood up one day and said, you know, maybe we need prayer. I found that prayer can actually have a calming effect. Uh, and he suggested that they bring in a, a chaplain. <laughs> and I think Hamilton, Lindsay, you tell me if this is true, Hamilton has said we don't need to bring in foreign auxiliaries. That sounds a little apocryphal to me, but they, <laughs> they nixed it. They wouldn't They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. And then, and then secondly, at the end, of course, he, he gave this great speech saying, I'm not sure that it's the best constitution. Many things could probably be done better, but I'm not sure it's it's not the best we're going to get. And it you know, and he goes on this whole thing. He says, "I urge you to to sign it unanimously, because if we don't sign it unanimously, then the country is going to see that there was division, and this is probably our best." He said it much more beautifully than I'm paraphrasing it, but that's what he basically said. I'm not sure it's not the best, uh, and I'm sure it's the best we're going to get. And then in the end, of course, the famous, famous moment when um, they're walking out, and I think the wife of the mayor of, of Philadelphia approached him and said... I think it was Elizabeth Willing Powell. And who is she? So the Powell family, it very well may be that Samuel Powell was the mayor at the time. I don't I don't remember. But Elizabeth Willing Powell was both a very good friend of Washington, but also one of the elite women in Philadelphia at the time was a regular hostess. So all of these people were coming to her house for dinner uh, during the summer of 1787 when this is taking place. And she was seeing them regularly. She was hosting them regularly. She was talking to them regularly. And she happens to cross paths with him. And then I don't want to take the, the wind out of your sails. No, not a bit. And thank you for saying that because, you know, it's often said, well, a woman came up to him. But th you're saying she was a key figure in key the figure. Philadelphia circles and, and, and not some random citizen. Uh, which I think is very important, that she's sort of a salon hostess in our own country uh -huh. when Philadelphia was the intellectual capital of the, of, of the New World. But anyway, as we all know, she said, what have you given us? And Franklin said, Madam, a republic, if you can keep it. A republic, if you can keep it. And this is actually a true story. This sounds apocryphal. It sounds like a myth, but it isn't. And of course, it's, it, it's the absolute greatest thing that 
Franklin could say, right, Lindsay? It, it really is. And the context of him saying this is so important because it's 1787. It's just a couple of years before he dies. Everyone knows he's sort of on his last leg. He, as you said, is there as a, as a figurehead. The other really important thing he does at the Constitutional Convention is he forces the delegates to think about what will happen when Washington was not president and someone might not act with as much trust in, in the office. He says, we really need to talk about this, guys. He's the only um, one who but, can. He's the only one who can say that yeah. because here's he totally here's is. Washington he totally right there, and so you're saying like yeah. we're not always going to have this guy, and you yeah. could easily offend Washington if Hamilton had said that or Governor Morris oh, yeah. had said that. Franklin can no, get away totally. with anything at this point. But go ahead. Yeah, no, I think you're t you're totally right. He's the only person that could say it. He was the one that was supposed to nominate Washington as the president of the convention, but he was sick that day, so the Pennsylvania convention did it unanimously, so as to sort of give the same. Impact, But when he says this at the end, it's, it's such a remarkable statement because it's someone who has seen for decades the amount of work that goes in to create this new nation, the amount of work that goes into trying to hold it together to provide the, in the international recognition, the financial support. He has been intimately involved with every single step. And he was a, an intellectual person. He was a student of history. He knew how republics typically went at that time. So did, you know, everyone else that was present on that particular day. And so he is, you know, speaking to the future. He's not, he's not really speaking to contemporaries. He's speaking to the future. And he's saying, this is going to take a lot of work to sustain and you can't take it for granted. And I think for most of the United States, we've often taken it for granted. Not yeah. now. Not now. So, Lindsay, let me ask you a question I've never asked you before. What did your man Washington think of Dr. Franklin? So they had a really interesting relationship because Washington was a little bit older than Jefferson and Hamilton. He was definitely not Franklin's contemporary, as we've discussed. He was three decades younger, but they had crossed paths many times starting in the Seven Years' War. So they had a long-term relationship. I think Washington was very uh, respectful of Franklin, very respectful of Franklin's service. He felt like he could learn from Franklin. They often socialized outside of official workday behavior. So some of my favorite Washington stories actually include Franklin. They went to dinner after the very last night of the Constitutional Convention, and they had dinner with the Spanish minister. Franklin and the Spanish minister were talking about Don Quixote, and Washington hadn't read it and was a little embarrassed that he hadn't read it. And so he went out to the bookstore the next day and bought a copy and went home to, to read it and to make sure he understood what they were talking about. And several months later, another copy arrives, and it's from the Spanish minister. And he said, this was the most beautifully illustrated copy I could find. Fortunately, it was in Spanish, which Washington couldn't read. But nonetheless, it was a very nice gesture. And both of those copies are still in the Mount Vernon Library today. But um, I, I love that story because, you know, Washington is there engaging with this discourse with Franklin at a time when, you know, they had just created a new constitution and they're talking about Don Quixote. Um Washington was so respectful of Franklin. This, uh, Ed Larson wrote a book, um, so Washington and Franklin, Franklin and Washington, that came out uh, in 2020. And the opening vignette of it is when Washington goes to meet with Franklin before the Constitutional Convention. And he walks to Franklin's house, partly because it's only a couple blocks away, but also because if he took his carriage, the carriage would be manned by enslaved valets. And at this point, Franklin is an ardent abolitionist. And so out of respect for those concerns, Washington did not bring 
his enslaved valets to the house. That's such a great, both of those are great stories. The story of Don Quixote, because of course, as you know, Washington always felt insecure about his <laughs> educational achie achievements. He, he never, he didn't know other languages. He wasn't, he wasn't deeply read. He was pretty well read, but he wasn't deeply read. He was no Jefferson. He was not even a Hamilton and certainly not a Franklin. And so to be in that, in that room and not just um, somehow go back into a kind of a sternness, but to go out the next day and buy a copy of Don Quixote, that says something wonderful about George Washington, I think, and right at the end of this long business. Jefferson claimed he read Don Quixote <laughs> while sailing from Boston to um, the, the old world in 19 days. He said he learned Spanish uh, and read Don Quixote on that trip, And to which John Quincy Adams said, yeah, right. Well, we're talking about Jefferson. There's another point that you you brought up, Clay, and that was that uh, Franklin gave Jefferson the last installment of his autobiography to see to publication. When Jefferson came back from France in 1789, he married off his daughter within a few weeks to her cousin, and then he came uh, to New York to take up his position as America's first Secretary of State, and along the way he stopped in Philadelphia to see Franklin, who was dying. Uh, everyone knew that Franklin was now on his deathbed, and Franklin uh, welcomed Jefferson, and Jefferson went into his bedroom and sat there, and they talked about their mutual friends in France and how the revolution was going in France and so on and so forth. And then at the end, Franklin said to Jefferson, young man, I wonder if you'd do me an important favor. Here's the last installment of the autobiography. Would you be willing to see it through the press? And, of course, Jefferson just loves this. This is exactly the kind of thing Jefferson most wants to do. Uh, and so he he likes us to know that he was one of the last people ever to see Dr. Franklin alive. It's one of those little boasting moments for Thomas Jefferson that you don't often see in him. In some ways, his his last act to share, share this with Jefferson is both um, fitting politically and a very interesting counterpoint to, I know one of the other topics on our list is his last statement on slavery. And in, on one hand, he's sort of giving his vote of support to Jefferson and on the other, totally sticking his thumb up his nose at him. And um, so, you know, I think, I think it's a good thing for us to talk about this last pamphlet because it is truly remarkable and so Franklin. Very late in his life, 1790, he presented a petition to the Congress calling on Congress to do the right thing on slavery. And it led, it was one, it was the, one of the first of such petitions, which there were iteration after iteration of through the first half of the 19th century. And uh, it, Southerners in Congress erupted in wrath and this should never be talked about and how dare this come up. And so then uh, Franklin had been stymied, although he'd certainly gotten the attention of everybody. And of course he was on his way out so he could say anything he wanted to say now. He'd been pretty quiet about slavery through much of his life, and he had owned some enslaved people too. But now, Lindsay, he wrote um, a satirical piece for the press. Yes. So, you know, he had signed on to this anti-slavery pamphlet in Congress, and then the people who yelped the loudest about this anti-slavery pamphlet had actually been some of the people in Congress who had accused him maybe of not being American enough. So to take, like, real sweet vengeance with this moment, he wrote a satirical pamphlet, and, and no one did satirical pamphlets better than Franklin. And he wrote this story because the defense of slavery that was offered in Congress was biblical. And it talked about the, how the 
slavery was in the Bible and it was totally fine. And so he wrote this satirical pamphlet where there was a uh, Muslim ruler and because the Quran endorsed slavery, they were going to hold in bondage white slaves and, you know, kind of builds out the same argument that these Southerners were putting forth in Congress, but from the perspective of Muslim slaveholders and white slaves. It's in first and person. It's first person by the Islamic leader saying, yes. this, is, this is our defense of it. And it was identical to the defense of slavery by American Southerners, only it was Islam rather than Christianity. Exactly. So it's really turning on, on their head the hypocrisy of the situation and closes out by saying, of course, this is ridiculous. Of course, this does not make sense. He really got the last word in that particular argument. Just, we have to close. I just want to say one more. He became a vegetarian. It's one of the funniest chapters in the autobiography. He became an ardent believer in vegetarianism and we should never kill anything. And uh, But then he was he was at sea and they were cooking fish and he smelled it and he, he, he got a, a hankering for fish so great that he ate it. And then he says, well, then I realized that everything eats somebody else and it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world and really this is sort of the nature of things. He says, so I dined upon cod very heartily and, con and continued to eat with other people, returning only now and then occasionally to a vegetable diet. And then this, so convenient a thing it is to be a reasonable creature, since it enables one to find or make a reason for everything one has a mind to do. That's Dr. Franklin. Lindsay, we love you. Thank you. Great snark today. David, thank you. We'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.